Last week, we discussed some of the more common modern misconceptions about the book of Revelation. And I provided for you some general introductory information, some tools for uh, you to take with you as you go through the book of Revelation on your own and other contexts. I want to review some of that now with you very briefly. And if some of this is new, how many people are new today who didn't come last Saturday? Okay. Uh, the recording from the talk last Saturday, the introductory information, also some of those misconceptions, all that information that we're going to review very quickly right now was all discussed last time. It is on record, I think, on, on the Internet. will be soon. Okay. So you can go to the... St. John's Institute of Catholic Culture, SJICC website, and get that information. On the brochure, great. There we go. Is it still not? It's just IC? There it is. On the back? Okay, so if you. If you weren't here last Saturday and you want to get the information from last Saturday, there was also a handout. Uh, some of the people have it today. I see. Wonderful. The map about the seven churches. So we talked last week about literary style. Remember we talked in the, about the Old Testament. There are pro prophetic books in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have prophetic literature. In particular, the book of Revelation. But in prophetic literature, as in the Old Testament, there are usually two different types of prophetic literature, or two different ways in which prophetic literature comes to us, and that is through audible prophecy or visual prophecy. God appears to Isaiah and says to him, Go to the people of Israel and say, Thus says the Lord. Right? Audible prophecy. There's also visual prophecy in the Old Testament. A prophet falls asleep and he has a dream. And God appears to him and shows him visions of goats and rams and strange things. And then he says, now go tell what you saw to the people of Israel, that they may repent. That's the type of prophecy, that visual prophecy, that is primarily the book of Revelation. And that's the kind of prophecy that oftentimes is the most confusing for us. But if you read the context of the literature, in particular Daniel and Amos and these other things where this appears, usually the, there's an explanation given about that imagery in the very context. Sometimes the prophet scratches his head and says, what's this all about? And an angel says, well, look, this is what it is. You see the he-goat there is Alexander the Great and the ram with the two horns, that's the Medo-Persian Empire. You see Daniel? Oh, okay. So, we could take that lesson with the book of Revelation. Oftentimes, there's explanations given right in the book of Revelation somewhere in the immediate context. And if you take something out of its context and don't read the explanation, then, of course, you're like a ship without a rudder. We also talked about colors, right? Rainbows, the image of the glory of God. We saw that with Noah and the covenant in the Old Testament. And when God appears, oftentimes in the Old Testament, in particular in the book of Ezekiel, He is surrounded by a rainbow. The glory of God in the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel is a book that has a lot of shared imagery with the book of Revelation. Also, the color white, the symbol of purity. You wash something, it's clean. So white oftentimes is a symbol of purity, cleanness, righteousness. 
And then also, because as you age, your hair tends to turn white, white is also a symbol of wisdom. Ideally, in accordance with your hair getting whiter, you are to acquire more information and knowledge. And so therefore, the wise man has the white head. Also, the symbol of black. Black is sometimes a symbol of death, destruction, things decaying. We'll see that today. Purple or scarlet. Purple or scarlet, even in our modern experience and storybooks, kings are dressed in purple. The reason for that is mollusk shells, when you grind them up, again, we talked about this last week, when you grind them up, you create a powder that you can make a dye out of that's very expensive. And so in the ancient world, only the very wealthy or the very powerful could afford purple dye or purple clothing. And so in the book of Revelation and in the Old Testament, things that are purple oftentimes symbolize either power, authority, or royalty, and also sometimes in a negative way, the things that sometimes can attend those aspects, and that is excessive luxury, pride, pomp, things like that, abuse of power. And in the color red, again, another natural experience for us. When you are cut, blood comes forth. Therefore, red in the Bible is usually the symbol of violence. During war, men get cut, blood runs, and so there's red, symbol of violence or war, destruction. Something we didn't talk about last week, ran a little bit of time there, and that is numbers. There are a lot of numbers in the book of Revelation. We can't talk about all of them, but the primary number symbolism you see in the book of Revelation and in the prophetic literature, first of all, the number three. The number three is the symbol of perfection or completion in the Bible. Moses says to Pharaoh, let us go a three days journey out into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Three days journey, very far away. A one day's journey is just outside of the city. Two days journey, you're still on the horizon. Three days journey, you're gone. And of course, Pharaoh says, no way. So, the next time you see three in that context, and for example, in the book of Exodus, God says to Moses in Exodus 19, prepare yourselves for three days, wash your garments, be clean, for in three days I will come to you on the mountain. Right? The appearance of God to the Israel as they came forth from the Exodus, freed from, from Egypt, the darkness and sin and paganism, and God appears to on Sinai and reveals His law on the third day. Obviously, you can see the importance and the typology there for the New Testament and the revelation of Jesus in His resurrection for the new Israel. The number four, universality. Why? The four winds, the four directions, north, south, east, and west. Abraham walks north, south, east, and west, blessing, as St. Ephraim says, the land and the sign of the cross, even there in the Old Testament. So north, south, east, and west is a symbol of universality, often of geographic universality. And again, it's a very natural experience for us. The number seven. When does seven symbolize? Seven is something that when people think of biblical imagery and numerology, seven is one that you first think of. Well, that's God's lucky number, right? He likes that one. He uses it all the time. But seven is used in the Old Testament more often than not to symbolize covenant. And the reason for that in Hebrew, sheva, the Hebrew word seven, has the same root as the verb shava, he swore, as in he swore an oath or joined himself in a covenant. You see this in a number of examples. 
Noah, for example, in that covenant with the rainbow that we talked about, the word covenant appears seven times. In Genesis as well, later on in chapter 21, a beam like an Abraham make a covenant at Beersheba, at the well of swearing or the well of seven, because Abraham gave him seven ewe lambs as an oath that he dug this well. You see? So seven oftentimes has, co- has some sort of covenantal aspect to it, in particular in the book of Revelation, as we'll see. Seven also is used in the Bible to symbolize something having nothing to do with covenant, and that is Gentiles, in particular in the New Testament. New Testament being written in Greek doesn't have that word play. So in the New Testament, seven usually refers to the Gentile world. And the reason for that is in Deuteronomy chapter 7, just by coincidence. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says, these are the seven nations that I have left among you. Do not intermarry with them. Do not be joined with them. And do not worship their gods. So the number seven in the Old Testament also, Deuteronomy chapter 7 and from then on, occasionally can refer to the Gentile world around Israel, God's people. And in the New Testament, more often than not, that's its reference. The number 10, multiples of 10, 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000, myriads upon myriads. The number 10 or 100 or 1,000 or multiples of the other numbers with 10, so 12, 1,200, 12,000, symbolizes a multitude, many. And then the number 12, the number 12, what does that symbolize for you? What do you think of when you hear the number 12? Both, right? Good. That was the intention. In the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes of Israel, 12 tribes of Jacob from the 12 sons of Jacob. So the number 12 for us symbolizes, often as the Old Testament, the 12 tribes. That's what we think of. And so in the New Testament, Jesus the Christ, the King, as He's reconstituting Israel, recreating it, reestablishing the kingdom of God, He chooses 12 men as a symbol of this action. Twelve. So in the book of Revelation, sometimes can refer to Israel, sometimes to the church, sometimes to both. We'll see. Literary structure. We talked about the literary structure last time briefly. There is a prologue in the book of Revelation. We looked at that. And the prologue is uh, mirrored at the other end of the book with an epilogue. Nice frame for the whole book. And in the book of Revelation, in the prologue and epilogue, you get some very important historical information that locks you into the first century. Unfortunately, people usually skim over that part. What's the seven churches? Whatever. Wow, look at that. Four horses. Six, six, six. Obama. Right? So, get all excited about that stuff, but we miss the historical context, and therefore we miss what John is trying to tell us in that book. The prologue and the epilogue is essential for understanding the book of Revelation. Inside the prologue and epilogue, within that frame, is the basic body of the book, and the first major section is four cycles of seven. There are seven letters, seven trumpets, seven, I'm sorry, seven letters, seven seals, then seven trumpets and seven bowls. Why? Seven covenant. Leviticus chapter 26 
God's first major declaration of what He will do with His people if they break His covenant that He made with them and they made with Him at Sinai in Leviticus chapter 26 is recorded in this manner. God says, If you keep My covenant and keep My commandments, I will dwell among you. You shall be My people. I shall be your God. A shadowy image of a restoration of Eden that would only come to fulfillment in the church. However, if you break My commandments and do not keep My laws and do not keep the covenant that you swore to Me and I swore to you, then I will chastise you sevenfold. I will chastise you covenantly. You see that? And if you still break My covenant and and do not keep My commandments, then I will chastise you sevenfold again. And if you still... He says that four times. Four times seven. A seven-fold chastisement or covenantal chastisement four times. Universally. So, Leviticus chapter 26 is a nice literary structure or frame for our understanding of the book of Revelation. We'll look at that as we get into the context. But the book of Revelation doesn't end with these four sevenfold structures. But in chapter 19, we hear about the victory of God. Victory over God's enemies. But there's good news. And it's the good news. The church is preserved. The book of Revelation is about the destruction of God's enemies and the preservation of, in the midst of that, His people. It's it's God showing forth His covenantal love to the new Israel, that is the church, just as in the Old Testament. The victory of God. Think about that next time you think about the book of Revelation. The victory of God. And then there's a thousand-year reign of Christ. Well, that sounds pretty positive, huh? Jesus sitting on a throne for a thousand years? That should make you smile. Well, again, the book of Revelation has a lot of very positive information in it for us and very hopeful information. The book of Revelation is not a book about destruction and death. It's a book about the promise of God fulfilled. And then the book concludes with some very happy information for us. We hear about the New Eden. God's Word, what we call the Bible, is framed with a prologue and an epilogue itself. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God creates and He dwells among man and man dwells with God in the Garden of Eden. Paradise. Joy. Happiness. As you know, tragically, we didn't stay there very long. We left. God stayed there. Waited for us to come back. We didn't come back for a while, so He had to go out and get us. And He brought us back through His Son, Jesus Christ. Bringing us back through those gates to the tree of life. The book of Revelation concludes with that very imagery. After the victory of God and the thousand year reign of Christ, there is a judgment and all the righteous who are in the church of Israel, the new Israel are brought into this new creation, this new Garden of Eden, where man and God again dwell together forever now, united through His Son. Alright, so that's the 
basic imagery that we see in the book of Revelation or its major structures. We talked about major interpretive models last time as well. We talked about the futuristic model, the one that's so exciting for us today, the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse Code. Right? We can look in this book and find out the end times and what's going to happen. The book is a manual for the last days. Well, it's very difficult to reconcile with the book itself. The book itself says over and over and over again, God speaking through John to us, that the description in the book is about the first century, about what is now, that is John's period, and what is to take place very soon. You have to read very soon in the exact opposite of its meaning to read a futuristic interpretation of this book. Now, it's not to say that there's not futuristic information in the book. The end of the book actually talks about the great eschaton, when God and man will dwell together forever. But it's at the end, the end of the book. And we'll talk about that next Saturday. There is also the historicist position. That is, that the seven churches of Asia Minor are actually the seven stages of history. What would be the problem with that? Well, it would kind of leave the seven churches of Asia Minor out of the story, wouldn't it? Remember, as we talked about last Saturday, the seven churches of Asia Minor were seven real churches, real parishes, with real priests and real bishops and deacons and people, coffee socials, the whole bit, and croissants. They were real people and they had real names. Can you imagine Sardis or Philadelphia? Gosh, that's too bad. We're just a stage in history. I guess it's some couple thousand years from now. So the historicist position is difficult to hold as if that was all the book of Revelation was about. There have been those who have attempted to make that system work with a reading the book of Revelation ever since the earliest uh, stages of reading this book. The problem with that is that every individual subjectively puts them in whatever church they want to be in. Right? So it's very common about a century after the Reformation for Reformation Christians to see themselves in Sardis. Well, why Sardis? Well, Sardis, you read the story, it sounds like the Reformation period. Just before that, the answer, that must be the, the medieval papal church. A little strange. So, today people put themselves in different churches when they read it that way. I do not recommend that interpretive model for you. There's another interpretive model that the book itself speaks of, and that's the Preterist model. It's the Preterist model that is past means that the book of Revelation speaks about what it says it speaks about. Interestingly enough, it tells you about what is taking place in the time of John and what is going to take very soon after taking the book as it says and actually as some of the earliest patristic interpretations of these words say. So, We'll be talking about that model more as we go through today and next Saturday. There was one more topic that I asked you about at the beginning last Saturday. I began by asking you what the word apocalypse means to you. Apocalyptic. What does it it conjure up in your mind? Apocalypse. The apocalypse code. How many movies have you seen in the last couple of decades with that in the title? Apocalyptic or apocalypse, oftentimes for the modern Christian, I won't make you raise your hand, 
raises imagery of destruction and death, and at least it's a little scary, if nothing else. But that's not what the word apocalypse means. The word apocalypse comes from the first line of the book. Let's look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and see if we can grapple with that word's meaning. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you have an older Bible, it might say the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is in the Greek, as you read this first line, it says, Apocalypsis Jesu Christu. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Well, most of your translations don't have that, do they? In the ancient world, you named books ordinarily. The book was named after the first line of the book or something relevant in the first sentence or two. We still have this, this uh, system of naming things and papal encyclicals and things like that. You're familiar with that. Council documents. You're familiar with that in the liturgy. Let's pray the Our Father. Or let's sing the Gloria. Or the... Kyrie, right? So, in the ancient world, songs, books, and things were oftentimes referred to in, in something from the first line or so of the, of, the, um, of the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? The destruction of Jesus Christ? The scary stuff of Jesus Christ? No. Revelation. Apocalypse is simply a Greek word which means revelation. Apocalypsis, to take away the covering. Revelation. Nothing scary there. In fact, the word apocalypsis is used a number of places in the New Testament. And there also, again, is just translated for you, revelation. And it's usually in the context in Paul's writings of the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have been waiting for all time for the revelation of His Son. It's always very joyful information. And that's what the book of Revelation is. Joyful information for you. Because it's the revelation of the Son of God. And that should bring great joy. Not scary. Now, let's look some more into chapter 1. We began to look at this in its historical context in reference to the seven churches last Saturday. Let's start reading again here. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants what must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So we saw there already, like last Saturday, that the individual here that is going to receive the revelation is named John. We know by tradition that this is John the Apostle. And we also know by tradition that John the Apostle in the early documents of the church is said to have gone to the Mount Patmos, to the island of Patmos, as he'll tell us here, for a witness to Jesus Christ. Because he has been a witness to Jesus Christ, he is in the midst of the tribulation and is now in exile on Patmos. John the Apostle was governing the churches of Asia Minor and... Because the, because the Roman Empire was persecuting the church, 
John was sent to Patmos. Again, we spoke about this in more detail last Saturday. If you look on your maps from last Saturday, remember Patmos is just off the coast of Asia Minor, just off the coast of Ephesus there. And John is asked to send this revelation as a letter of consolation and exhortation to endure patiently the present tribulation that even John is sharing. Because while John is in Patmos, the church in Asia Minor is continuing to be persecuted. John writes this letter of exhortation to encourage them, strengthen them in the midst of this, of this tribulation. Verse 3, Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written therein, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom of priests. What does that sound like to you? Kingdom of priests. Freed us by His blood. Exodus. Right? He is the Lamb the Passover lamb has freed us by His blood, the firstborn, and we now, standing at Mount Sinai, are receiving the revelation of God. And how did God come to Mount Sinai? Verse 6, And made a kingdom of priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming on the clouds. The imagery is recalling for you the Exodus story. And every eye will see him, everyone who pierced him, all the tribes, all the, all the tribes of the land will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. Remember the twelve tribes standing at the foot of Mount Sinai while Moses went up? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother, who share with you in, the, in Jesus the tribulation. There's that word tribulation. You hear about it a lot in the Tim LaHaye series, the tribulation period, the great tribulation, the tribulation saints. Who are they? Well, Tim LaHaye is a bit off on his chronology. The tribulation saints are John and the Christians of Asia Minor who are facing the tribulation. And he says, And the kingdom and the patient endurance was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you've seen in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Theatra, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Those are the seven churches of Asia Minor. Seven major cities of that region. And we talked about last time how they're even listed in the order that someone would be traveling along the roads through that region. I had you trace the horseshoe, right, as you went through that region on the path indicating again to you the historical context of the book. This was a book, as it says about itself, to be delivered to these seven churches, these seven major churches, which would be governing other churches in the region, minor churches out in the, in the villages and things. These are the seven churches that are receiving this revelation to prepare the Christians of Asia Minor in this region for the tribulation that they are going to endure, are presently enduring, and are going to endure because it's not going to get easier, John reveals to them. Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on the turning I saw seven golden lampstands. 
What are the seven golden lampstands? No. You know about the space shuttle, right? On the space shuttle, you've got seven... No. Seven golden lampstands. If you read the book of Revelation, you come across something, the seven golden lampstands, you may say, gosh, what is, what is that? Well, hold on. Usually they'll tell you. All right. So the seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Seven lampstands should remind you of Exodus chapter 25. In Exodus chapter 25, God told Moses, build me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Right? A restoration of Eden in the shadowy way there in the Old Testament. And Moses builds the sanctuary according to the fashions of the day. No, he builds the sanctuary, we're told, over and over again, according to the pattern that God showed him on the mountain. Moses sees God in his heavenly temple. And he tries to build an image of that on earth. Because God is going to sit on the ark, on the earth. And what's going to connect him to the earth? The covenant in that ark. All right? So, Exodus chapter 25 tells us about the holy place has a seven-branch candle stand in it. Again, Moses is building an image of what he's seeing. We find out that that seven-branch candle stand comes with fulfillment here. Verse 13, And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. He doesn't see in the midst of the lampstands a shadowy cloud, the Shekinah glory cloud. He doesn't see the smoke. He sees the incarnation. He sees the revelation of God. He sees one like a son of man. John is intending here for you to understand more than simply the incarnation here. He's intending for you to recall Daniel chapter 7. If you hold your hand there and flip back to Daniel 7 for a minute, you'll see what I'm talking about. Daniel 7 is going to be an important chapter for us. You may want to put a marker there. We're going to be looking at it a lot. Much of the book of Revelation is drawn from Daniel chapter 7. <laughs> About two-thirds of the way through your Bible. Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon... Daniel had a dream. Daniel's in exile, remember? He's with the exiles in Babylon. And he had a dream as he lay in bed. Verse 2. Daniel said, I saw in the vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven. Oh, the four. We're stirring up the great sea. What is the great sea? Well, the great sea in the Old Testament is a reference to the Mediterranean. But the sea or the waters is also a symbol in prophetic literature of the waters surrounding the land of Genesis chapter 1, day 3. The land came forth from midst the waters. And the waters all around are a symbol of the Gentile world oftentimes in the prophetic literature because the land that came forth from the waters is the promised land. So, Daniel chapter 7 Four beasts are going to come from the Gentile world upon the land. 
The four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. Verse 4, the first was like a lion, had eagle's wings. And I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made stand upon its feet like a man. This first one is symbolized as an animal that has wings like an eagle. What does the the wings of an eagle symbolize? You know the song, right? That popular song of modern day, on eagle's wings. That imagery comes from Exodus chapter 19. God said, I brought you forth out of Egypt as if on eagle's wings. That is, with great speed. And he says in Deuteronomy, I will bring a nation upon you if you do not keep my covenant that flies as fast as an eagle. Babylon. Babylon is the nation that finally conquered Jerusalem and took its king Zedekiah back to, in exile to Babylon. So, Daniel chapter 7 tells us about this first beast is like an eagle, or has eagle's wings. That's the Babylonian Empire. Verse 5, And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, was raised up on the side. It had three ribs in its mouth. Between its teeth, it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. That is, the Medo-Persian Empire. Symbolized elsewhere in the book of Revelation, there's a ram with two horns. Third, a leopard with four wings. That is Alexander the Great, who ran as fast, his army moved as fast as a leopard across the the face of the earth, as ferocious as a leopard, and how did he do it? With his four generals. Again, Alexander the Great and his death and the rise of the four generals after his death is symbolized in another place in the book of Revelation as the he-goat who has his horn broken off in place Four horns come. That's in chapter 8. Then, and this is the beast that's in particularly important for us, verse 7, After this I saw in the night's vision, behold, a fourth beast, terrible and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. Ten horns. That sounds scary. What should? What does the ten horns symbolize? Can you imagine an animal like this having ten horns? It'd be kind of strange. Well, we'll see as we go through, and you see this in the book of uh, all other books of the Bible. The horn is the symbol of an animal's strength, right? The bull. It doesn't come at you with its tail. The bull comes at you with its horns. I had a little pet goat when I was a kid, and every time I turn around, you know what it would do to me, right? The goat runs at you with its horns. That's its defense. And so the horn is a symbol of strength, of power in the Bible. And so this animal has ten horns. We'll find that those are ten kings. Verse 8, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them a little horn. And this little horn had eyes like a man, and it was saying great things. Verse 9, And I looked, thrones were placed, and one that was ancient of days took his seat. His raiment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. He's seeing God. And he's describing Him as best as he can to you. He's the Ancient of Days and His hair was white wool. Right? Pure wisdom. And His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels were burning fire. You see this in Ezekiel, the throne of God. A stream of fire issued and came forth from Him and a thousand thousand served Him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before Him. Remember multiples of ten? Talked about that. 
The court sat in judgment and books were opened. Verse 11, I looked and then because of the sound of the great words the horn was speaking, as I looked, the beast was slain, its body destroyed, given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season. Verse 13, I saw in the night vision and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, kingdom, all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 110, a fulfillment of Psalm 2. All those things, a fulfillment of the promises God gave to David through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 7. That the dynasty of David would continue forever. And eventually a son would come who would not only be the son of David, but the Son of God. And He would build the temple of God that would last forever. Solomon is the first shadowy symbol of this. Our Lord, the Son of David, as Matthew shows us clearly in chapter 1 of his Gospel, is the fulfillment. Daniel chapter 7 tells us some very important information there. There are four kingdoms that are going to arise successively. During the reign of the fourth kingdom, that is the Roman Empire, during the reign of the fourth empire, the Son of Man will appear and God's kingdom will be established in the midst of that empire. And that empire will fight against us. We're going to see in the next couple of verses and it will lose. God's empire will have success. So Daniel chapter 7 continues. Again, if you were confused about these beasts up to this point, these horns, you just keep reading. Verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and visions in my head alarmed me. I approached one who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. Verse 17, these four beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Verse 19, then I desire to know the truth concerning the fourth beast. And he goes on to describe this last empire as very powerful, unlike all the empires before it. But that empire will persecute the saints of the kingdom, God's kingdom. And as you would expect, he does not prevail. God prevails. God's kingdom prevails. Verse 23 tells us about this, continuing... And finally in verse 27, And the kingdom of the dominion, the greatness of the kingdoms of the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion, all dominion shall serve them. So, look at that. In the midst of this, what sounds like a very scary dream at first, there's resolution. You should smile at the end of the chapter. And in fact, the book of Revelation tells us over and over about this cycle that we just looked at. And at every stage, it reminds you, the Christian of Asia Minor, to smile because God is in control. So, look back to Revelation chapter 1 now and see if it sheds some light for us on that chapter. Revelation chapter 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. On turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the golden lampstands, one like a son of man. So he sees the heavenly temple. In the midst of the heavenly temple, 
he sees the one like a son of man. Thus, the one who is going to arise that Daniel tells us about is not only going to be the king over Israel, he is going to be God. And he is in his heavenly temple. And look at the description. He's clothed with a long robe, a golden girdle. His head, his hair are white as wool. He describes Jesus like the vision of God in the Old Testament. John shows you, in particular among his Gospels, that the Incarnation is revealing to us something very special about God. You can see that in his prologue. Verse 19, he says to John, Now write what you see, what is and what is to take place hereafter. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, they are the seven tiles from the space shuttle. No. The seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches of Asia Minor. Okay, so right there in the context, you're locked into the historical context and given some information about the book and about the information. Chapter 2 then continues to tell us about this revelation. God says to, to John, now write a letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your work, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear evil men, but have been tested. So John encourages, or God encourages the church in Ephesus to continue in their struggle, endure the test, And in fact, the idea of the test or the struggle is something we'll see in every one of these letters to the churches. In chapter 8, or I'm sorry, chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 8, to the next church, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for ten days. Who was tested for ten days? Daniel. Remember his testing? What did Daniel eat during that time? Vegetables. Why? It was good for him. Daniel did not want to profane himself with the meat and the other things that have been offered in Babylon to the gods of Babylon. And he didn't want to eat the food that the king was eating. He wanted to eat lesser, lesser quality food that wouldn't have been offered to the gods. Because he did not want to participate in the sacrifices to those gods. So he only ate vegetables. The next letter to a church is uh, verse 12. And the angel to the church in Pergamum write, verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Pergamum, there was a massive throne to Zeus that could be seen from a great distance from the city. And hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice immorality. What's that all about? Well, look at the letter to the next church. Verse 18, the letter to Theatra. Verse 20, I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching beguiling my servants to practice immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. 
testing, eating only vegetables, food offered to idols, immorality, synagogue of Satan. What's that all about? It has nothing to do with our modern day, but it has everything to do with the first century church. What was the first council of the church all about? Acts 15. Fighting between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians about what the Gentile Christians had to do to be considered true Christians. Did they have to be circumcised? Keep the kosher laws? No. The council declared definitively, definitively through the power of the Holy Spirit, Acts 15, that the Gentile Christians only had to do four things. They had to abstain from pollutions of idols. They had to abstain from certain types of immorality and unlawful marriage according to Jewish law. And other things. They couldn't eat blood, bratwurst was out, that kind of thing. Why was that? The pious Jew in the first century was usually a vegetarian if he lived outside of the region of Israel. If you lived in Ephesus or Sardis or Philadelphia and you were a Jew, a pious Jew, you only ate vegetables. Not because you were a strict vegetarian for health reasons, but because you did not want to profane yourself like Daniel. You did not want to eat all the meat that had been sacrificed to the local idols. And if you bought meat at the local back door of the, of the nearby temple, or you bought meat in the marketplace, you were almost guaranteed that that in some way had been sacrificed to an idol before you bought it. So a Jew in the first century, including pious Jewish Christians, oftentimes were strict vegetarians. Not because they didn't like meat, but because they didn't want to participate in the sacrifices of the idols. Acts 15, the council declared that the Gentile Christians had to also abstain from meat that they knew had been sacrificed to an idol. Why? St. Paul explained to, explains to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you do this, if you eat meat sacrificed to an idol, you Gentile, former polytheist, you might yourself fall back into polytheism. Or what if your brother, Jewish brother or Gentile brother Christian, sees you eating and thinks, I guess it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to an idol and worship Zeus. So the church declared that the Gentile Christians, when living in Gentile areas and could not get meat that they knew had not been sacrificed to an idol, had to abstain from that meat. That's one of the major issues in the early church. It's one of the major subjects of Paul's epistles. It's one of the major subjects of Acts of the Apostles. And it's also one of the major subjects, strangely enough, of the seven churches that are the seven letters sent to the seven churches of Asia Minor. You follow me? All right. Now, the seven letters to the seven churches concludes in chapter 3. In chapter 4 of the book, we begin to see another revelation. John sees Jesus again. But now he sees him not as the one like a son of man with the seven lampstands. He sees Jesus as the lamb who has been slain, and also the king over all the earth, one and the same. The very image we saw there at the beginning of chapter 1 about Jesus. John cries when he sees this vision, because in the midst of this vision, there is a scroll with seven seals. In the ancient world, before you sent the letter off without an envelope, you rolled it up and put a wax seal on it. And that way, the person who received it knew it had not been opened. 
This scroll has seven seals on it. Why? Because it's going to reveal what God is about to do in accord with the covenants He has made and people have made with Him. He begins to open the first seal. Pop. And if you want to hear about that, come back in ten minutes. Okay, open up your Bibles to chapter 6 of the book of Revelation. Remember the vision he had in chapters 4 and 5? That vision of the Lamb that was also the king of the tribe of Judah begins to open the scroll with seven seals. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, as with a voice of thunder, Come, and I saw, and behold, a white horse with its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. That's one of the other symbols of the color white in the book of Revelation and in prophetic literature is also victory. Verse 3, when he opened the, seventh seal, uh, the second seal, I heard and the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. What do you think is going to happen? It takes peace from the earth. Again, the word earth here, gay in, in Greek or Eretz in Hebrew, usually in the Bible, a better translation there would be land for you. When you think of the word earth and you see the word earth in the Bible, you usually think of a big blue ball from a satellite image. That's not the image John is imagining for you here, okay? That's an image that only we can see because we see it on, you know, NASA and things like that. But the land, the thing that's underneath you, in particular, usually it's a reference to the promised land, the land of Palestine. <clears throat> there are a number of other horses that come. Four horses come with the four seals, the first four seals. Verse 12, And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. Now that sounds like the end of the world. I know what you're thinking. You ever heard that kind of language before? Sun, the moon, the stars will not give their light. The moon will turn to blood. The stars will... Jesus used that language in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 records for us the same story of Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem. The prophecy begins with, you see all this stuff? Not one stone will be left upon another. And they say, when will this happen? And he tells them, within one generation. In the Bible, that is 40 years. And that's exactly 40 years from the moment Jesus said that. 40 years later, Jerusalem was destroyed. In the midst of that prophecy, he said, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give us light. The stars will fall from the sky. And we modern readers see that and we think, oh my goodness, Jesus must have been wrong. He said, every one of my words will take place, will come to pass before this generation passes away. Not just some of them. What is he referring to? Well, in the ancient world, they didn't have a Timex on their wrist or a clock on the wall that my brother keeps reminding me of. 
In the ancient world, how did you tell time? The sun, the moon, and the stars. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, this is their description, their function, to give us time, the seasons, the months, the years, the days. And so when you say that those things that will not give their light to tell time cease to give light, you're saying that time is up for that particular epoch. For example, in Isaiah chapter 13, Isaiah uses this very same language to refer to the destruction of Babylon by the Medo-Persian Empire. What is he saying? That is, time is up for the empire of Babylon. Time is up for the temple in Jerusalem within one generation. Time is up here for the enemies of God. Time is up for that final beast that is attacking the saints of the kingdom. Why? Why is the time up? Because God is fighting for them. Well, how does He protect them, you might say? Chapter 7. He gives them the mark. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. See that imagery of the four winds, the four directions? Holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on, on earth or sea or any tree, then I saw another angel descend from the rising sun and seal the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels that had been given power to harm earth and sea and saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God upon their foreheads. So the beast has his mark, but God gives his mark. What is that? Is that a good, futuristic, subcutaneously implanted computer chip? Versus the bad one? No. What is it? Well, the imagery is recalling for you here the first destruction of Jerusalem when God sealed his own to protect them. If you read the story in the Old Testament about the destruction of Jerusalem, you found that not all went in exile. Only the wicked. Those who were righteous, the poor and the pious who were still in the land remained in the land with Jeremiah and Baruch. They, got to, they were left behind. They were left behind in the land to till and keep it. While the wicked were taken away in exile in fulfillment of the promises God had given to them in Deuteronomy. And those who had been left behind had been sealed by God. Ezekiel chapter 9. Flip over there for a second. Ezekiel is right before Daniel. So if you had Ezekiel marked in your Bible, or Daniel marked in your Bible, flip before that. You come to Ezekiel chapter 9. Daniel, or Ezekiel, is taken in a vision. He's off in Babylon too. But he has a dream. And in that dream, he's taken in a vision to Jerusalem. And this is just before the Babylonians destroy the city. Chapter 9. He heard an angel cry with a loud voice saying, Draw near you executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And lo, six men came from the direction of the upper gate. Verse 3. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherubim which had rested on the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case in his side. The Lord said, verse 4 to him, Go through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on their foreheads. On the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And then we hear that God unleashes the other angels to now go and execute judgment. 
Who are these angels? Well, they're the angelic forces leading the Babylonian Empire in to destroy Jerusalem. That's right. God's using the Babylonians to execute His judgment upon Jerusalem. But those who sigh over the abominations that are going on in the city, the pagan idolatry everywhere, they are left behind because God seals them with a protective mark. The same thing is happening in Revelation chapter 7. During the second destruction of Jerusalem, God preserves His own. The new remnant and righteous Israel, that is the church, preserved forever in the body of His Son. And they're described that way as the new Israel. Look at verse 4. I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. Who are they? Jehovah's Witnesses. 144,000. What does that number mean for you? 144 is 12 times 12, right? Times 1,000. A great multitude. When you got to Mount Sinai in the ancient world, who was with you? Israel, a mixed multitude. The twelve tribes of Israel had come forth out of Egypt in the Exodus, come to Mount Sinai to receive the revelation of God, and there was a great mixed multitude with them. The Gentiles were already coming in in accord with the promises given to Abraham, through your seed all the nations shall be blessed, which only comes to its great fulfillment in the New Testament then we see that these 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, who are these? This is the early church. And with the early church, verse 9, a great multitude, which no man could number from every nation, from all the tribes, the peoples, the tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. That sounds pretty happy, doesn't it? Right? So in chapter 6, we saw these horses coming forth with great violence and war and famine. But in the midst of that, the wine and the oil were preserved. That is, the church. In chapter 7, we find out that the wine and the oil are preserved the harvest of the Feast of Booze, because God is dwelling among them. He is tabernacling among them and they have been sealed, just as in the Old Testament. And, as you would expect, there is great joy. Verse 14, John asks about all of these. What do these mean? And again, you get the answer if you ever wonder. Verse 14, the angel said, Sir, you know. He said, These They are those who have come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. A new exodus. And the next couple of verses is described as Israel wandered to the wilderness and God dwelt over them in the Shekinah glory cloud and protected them. So also the new church in the same manner. Chapter 8 then tells us about the seventh seal. We had seven seals, remember, on that scroll, and we've now come to the seventh seal. The seventh seal opens up into the seven trumpets. And this is where things usually get confusing for people because they have not dwelt long enough 
in the book of Daniel or Ezekiel to understand the imagery. But you have. So, the seventh seal releases seven angels blowing their seven trumpets. Much of the same imagery is repeated here. In fact, many have speculated, and it makes a lot of sense, that the seven, the cycle of seven, in this is a, not chronologically seven, uh, four stages of seven, but rather a repetition of seven. However, whatever the structure is intending us to understand here, this, the seventh trumpet reveals some things that are usually very confusing for people, and that's what we're going to focus on right now. Chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. So we heard about six angels blowing their six trumpets, much of what we heard about with the seven seals, or the first six seals. And now the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Daniel 7. Right? Remember the one like a son of man reigning forever? Verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. It's not under the Pentagon. Indiana Jones did not find it. In fact, he was looking in the wrong place anyway. But the ark of the covenant is in heaven. John sees it was seen with his temple and there were flashes, lightning, noises, peals of thunder, earthquakes, heavy hail. Again, you're locked into the Exodus story. And what has he seen? A great vision in the heavens. A woman clothed with the sun. The ark in the Old Testament was an acacia wood box about the size of a bathtub covered in gold. And its significance was not that it was shiny and pretty, but it contained the covenant, the commandments, that God had joined Himself to Israel and Israel to God. And on top of that ark was the throne of God. This is where God rested on the earth. And from there, Exodus 25, God spoke with Moses about all of His commandments for Israel. One of the most important types for the incarnation in the Old Testament. Because it is fulfilled for us in the New Testament when the new ark contains within her the Ten Commandments in the flesh as Jeremiah had told us in chapter 31 would happen. And she also carries as the great throne the king. And he sees this woman with a crown of 12 stars. Why? Well, because she's about to give birth to the king. In the ancient world, in particular in Israel, the queen in the kingdom was the mother of the king, called the Gebera, the mighty woman in the Old Testament. You can see this in a number of instances in First and Second Kings. She is said to have a crown of 12 stars because she is the Queen of Israel. Why is she the Queen of Israel? Because she is about to bear a son who will be the King of Israel. And here we see, verse 3, And another portent appeared in heaven, behold, a great dragon, red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, Remember the ten horns? And seven diadems upon its head, its tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child and he might devour her child when she brought it forth. She brought forth a male child who was to rule the nations with an iron rod. Psalm 2. Right? 
the great son of David. And the woman, uh, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, Daniel 7. Then the beast turned that, uh, verse 5, sorry, she brought forth a male child who was to rule the nations with the iron rod, but her child was caught up to, the, to his throne, verse 6, and the woman fled in the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God and which to be nourished for 1,260 days. How long is that? Three and a half years? Do you know how long the siege was upon Jerusalem by the Roman Empire? Three and a half years. Wow, what a coincidence. Not really. So, verse 7, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon was thrown down and defeated. Right? When God's empire goes to bat against the empires of the earth, there's no challenge. When the animal, this beast, which is, we find, the great dragon, the accuser of old, the great serpent, that is Satan, tries to conquer Jesus, he doesn't have a chance. He is caught up into heaven to God's throne and given all power and dominion and authority. So what does that beast then go to do, Daniel chapter 7 after that? To make war on the saints of the kingdom. Chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, Daniel 7, with ten horns. What beast are we talking about? Daniel chapter 7 told us about four beasts. During the time of the fourth beast, the one like the Son of Man would arise and he would reveal the kingdom of God that would conquer that fourth beast and give the kingdom over to the saints that is, the members of that kingdom of God. So we hear about a fourth beast. We hear about a beast arising that has ten horns with ten diatoms upon its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. What's that all about? Well, remember the Roman Empire, and this is hinted at in Daniel chapter 7, the Roman Empire, this fourth beast, was unlike the rest of the beasts and that it had incorporated everything before it. This was the genius of the Roman Empire. They didn't just destroy another empire, another kingdom. They absorbed it with its gods and its political system. And this is how they were able to conquer so quickly. So this fourth beast is described as a conglomeration of all the beasts that came before it. And as you know of your history books from the book of the, of the Roman Empire, you know this is what happened. And... To it, the dragon, from chapter 12, gave his power, his throne, and his great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. We saw this in Daniel chapter 7. These heads, or these horns, also described in the book of Revelation as kings. One of the kings of the Roman Empire during this period appeared to have a mortal wound, but recovered. Many have speculated about the identity here, and we have no time to get into it in much detail now. Nero has been one of those candidates who died and was believed to again rise from the dead in the near future. There were other individuals who had been injured. There were also lots of complications in the history of the Roman Empire in the first century that could be the identity of this injured horn. However, Either way, whatever one it is, important for us is the kingdom of the saints 
is what we find out in verse 11. Then I saw another beast which rose out of the land. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises the authority of the first beast in the presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So the dragon, that is Satan, or the great serpent, had failed to conquer the one like the Son of Man. He then turns to conquer the saints of the kingdom. And he does it in two ways. He uses the beast from the sea, that is the Roman Empire, and this beast from the land. And the beast from the land causes the saints of the kingdom to worship the beast from the sea. Now, if you know anything about the first century in Asia Minor, you know about Caesar worship. One of the things that the Roman Empire used as an accusation against the early Christians was that they were unfaithful to the empire. Treacherous. Why? Because they refused to offer incense and sacrifices to Caesar and all of the gods of the Roman Empire. That's disloyalty. And so, the saints in the early church, the Christians in the early church, were being persecuted primarily by the Roman Empire for this reason. And in fact, in one of those churches of Asia Minor, Polycarp was put to death for this very reason. What does he do, this beast from the land? Verse 16, It causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand and on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let him who has understanding reckon the number of the beast, for it is a human number. Its number is 666. What does that number conjure up in your minds? We began last Saturday by talking about that, right? 666. What does it mean? Well, the speculations usually go something like this. Seven is the number for perfection in the Bible. Six is one less than that, so it must be the symbol of imperfection. Six times three, or 666, complete or total imperfection. This is the number of the Antichrist. Right? You ever heard that? That's the normal reason. Well, every stage of that reasoning was faulty. First of all, the number seven is not the number of perfection in the Bible in that sense. The number three is. The number seven is usually talked about covenant or reference to the Gentiles. The number six is not the number of imperfection in the Bible. In fact, you will not find a single place in the entire Bible where six is used in any kind of a negative way. In fact, I can show you a number of beautiful passages where six is actually a number of completion or perfection. First of all, when, how many days did God take to create the earth and the world? Six. And it was good. In fact, how many wings are on the seraphim? And the eyes. In Isaiah, we see the angels with an anatomy that reflects the number six. Six in the Bible is usually the number of creation, the symbol of God's manifestation of glory and creation. And this is one of the earliest patristic interpretations of that number. But people usually go backwards with it 
and find 666. This is the number of the beast. It's bad or something. And therefore, number six must be something bad in the Bible. Actually, number six means creation, ordinarily. And so what does the number 666 mean here in the Bible? We find that this number is, put on the, is a, incorporated with a mark on the head and on the forehead, and it prevents those who, from, those who do not have this mark are not able to buy or sell. What does that mean? Well, you have a credit card, don't you? Take your credit card out. No. <laughs> that's another one of those false ideas that's popular today, or a barcode or something like that. Again, think about the first century. One of the things you weren't allowed to do in the marketplace, and one of the ways the Roman Empire checked on who was a good citizen who was not, was before you entered in, you sprinkled incense to Caesar, especially in Asia Minor. But what would 666 mean? It calls for wisdom, for understanding. What's this have to do with anything? How's your Latin? Vicarius Fili Dei. Anyone speak Latin? Vicar of the Son of God. You know the Roman numerals? What are these? What's a V? What's a one or an I? One. What's a C? Hundred. What's an A? Let's put a zero there. Okay. What's an R? Nothing. We'll put a zero there. What? The I? One. What's a U? Five. Good. Five. V's and U's are the same. What about an F? Let's put a zero there. All right. What about an F? Nothing. Zero. What about an I? One. L? Fifty. One. One. That's a hard one for some of us. Five hundred. E? What's that spell? 666. Do you see? Now who, my friends, might be Vicarius Fili Dei? It all makes sense, you see? Now you know. Okay, so what are some problems with this speculation? First of all, <clears throat> what would Vicarius Fili Dei mean to the first century Christians who received this book? Absolutely nothing. They didn't speak Latin. In fact, no one did unless you were in Italy or you were part of the major administration of the Roman Empire. The common language in Asia Minor was Greek. And if you had Jewish background, what did you speak? Aramaic. Right? In fact, what language is the book written in? Right. So you're already seeing some incongruity there. Furthermore, as this theory is usually developed. This has to do with the rise of the papacy in the Middle Ages. And finally, we come to Sardis and on and on. What's that have to do with Christians in the first century? Nothing. 
Okay, again, something now and soon to take place. Secondly, Vicarious Fili Dei, while it sounds very papal, because it's in Latin, has nothing to do with any titles of the Pope. This title has never, in any official document, been used by the Church or by the Pope as a title. All right? Now, what else do you see problematic here? Well, where did, how did you calculate these numbers here? Roman numerals. So I'm taking characters that are Latin characters using a Roman numerical system for Greek-speaking Christians in Asia Minor. All right, so. <laughs> what numerical system might you expect if this was a number code for a name? Maybe something to have to do with the Greek alphabet or the Aramaic alphabet, maybe? Yeah? Okay. Finally, the Carius Pili Day does not add up to 666. I was playing some fast number games there for you. You may have noticed that I quickly added zeros. What do you know about your study of the Roman numerical system? One of the major problems with, and the reason why we don't still use it on our calculators today, is it doesn't have zeros. It's an ancient system from the Etruscans, and it's kind of complicated. It doesn't work very well in every situation. In fact, zeros were only begin to be developed as a development of the Roman numerical system in the late Middle Ages. So, again, you're far from the first century. And furthermore, it doesn't add up to 666 because zeros are not part of that system. Lots of major problems with that calculation. What could we be talking about here? Again, first century, Aramaic, Greek, what could it be? Well, it may seem strange to you, but the actual number name calculation thing is something that actually is common in the first century. You actually find it in other places in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14, 14, 14. When Matthew describes Jesus as the great Son of God and great Messiah, he shows you that he is 14 generations from this period to the next. 14 generations, 14 generations. And you think, so? Well, for the Jewish-speaking Christian, Aramaic-speaking Christian, this is very important. Because Dawid, Dalit, while Dalit, Hebrew, the Hebrew name and Aramaic name, David, Adds up to 14. How does it add up to 14? This sounds like some sort of cryptic code. No. We, in our modern experience, have two alphabets. Actually, it's the same Phoenician alphabet, just two different descendancies of it. One, coming from the Arabic form of it, from the Phoenician alphabet, we use for counting. The other one, we use for writing our letters, our words. But they actually go back to the same Phoenician root, the same Phoenician alphabet. Alpha, beta, right? Say your alphabet. A, B, Aleph, Bet, 
alpha, beta, it's the same thing. So in the ancient world, because they used the same letters, the same characters for numbers and for, for counting and for writing, it was very easy to move back and forth between symbolism for them. And they did this all over the place, and particularly in Matthew's Gospel, that's written in what language? Aramaic. Originally written in Aramaic for you. So, John is encoding probably here for you a name. And what name would he be encoding for you? If you add up the characters of Neron Khazar, the Aramaic form that appears all over in the rabbinic literature and the Jewish literature of the first century in reference to Caesar Nero, guess what number it adds up to? 666. Guess who was the major persecutor of the Christians in the first century? Nero. Gosh, it seems so coincidental, doesn't it? And in fact, you know what's funny is Nero Kazar may sound funny to you because there's an N on Nero. Nero. The normal Greek way to refer to this individual is Nero Kazar. And that is the manuscript variant that is very common in the Greek manuscripts of the book of Revelation. And the number is 616. Showing you that the earliest Christians in making copies of these manuscripts understood clearly who this individual was. So, the next thing you see here in this very context is the mark on the head and on the forehead. What are we talking about? Remember, the first time you saw anyone give a mark was God. Gave a mark to Cain to protect him that no one might kill him. In Exodus chapter 13 and Deuteronomy chapter 6, you have two references that are very helpful for you in reading of Revelation chapter 13. In Exodus chapter 13 and Deuteronomy 6, we hear that the law of God is to be like a frontlet hanging between your eyes and to be a mark on your hand. Not a computer chip, but how you live your life. You see Jews, pious Jews today in the airports and wherever on the street, wrapping the phylacteries upon their hand around their head, right? wrapping little scrolls of the law of God on themselves. Exodus chapter 13 says, the law of God must be as a mark on your hand. That is, everything you do must be in accord with the light of God. It must be like a thing hanging between your eyes, on your forehead, that everything you think about is in accord with the law of God. Thus, whatever you think, and whatever you do must be in accord with the law of God unless you forget it, write it on your doorpost so that whether you're inside or outside, you always speak to your children about the law of God. And it's this law of God, this righteousness that preserves alive those who were sealed in Ezekiel chapter 9, those who sighed about the abominations, the iniquity of the period, and is this sealing of the righteousness of God that keeps alive the Christians in the first century. As you read those seven letters, you find the exhortation is to stand firm, make it through the tribulation, endure the test. The reward is on the other side. And God is with you and has sealed you and preserved you just like Israel of old. But this time, you are sealed with the mark of His Son. (coughs) 
So, in the book of Revelation, the beast has his own mark. That is to say, those who do not keep the commandments of God or in thought or action. In neither situation are we talking about actual marks, but rather, as our Lord said, by their fruits you will know them. A major theme in the book of Revelation. And that theme comes to a climax at the end of the book when God judges those who have kept his commandments and those that have not. And to find out about that, we'll see you next Saturday. Seven hills. Seven hills. What? I knew it. (laughs) That's anachronistic. The ancient world, the seven hills, the Roman Empire was the city known to be city on seven hills. And furthermore, the Vatican City is not on one of the ancient seven hills of Rome. They wouldn't allow them to be there. So the the seven hills in Revelation, or the seven heads of the dragon described as seven hills, and we see that in chapter 17, which we'll talk about in detail actually next Saturday. Question back there. Oh. Oh. Susie. Matt, what do you think about um, Scott Hahn's kind of exposition on Revelation as as the heavenly liturgy, the Lamb's Supper? Yes, uh, Scott Hahn put out a book many years ago, The Lamb's Supper which is a very good book for you to read, gets you anchored into the liturgy. Remember the Bible is not designed, was never imagined to be slipped into a drawer at a hotel for you to discover, oh, oh, this Jesus, wow, this is what my Christian friends must talk about. Or for someone to knock on your door and hand it to you. This is the church's book. It's one of the church's books. It's a liturgical text. It's a collection of the writings, the word of God, to be used in the context of the liturgy of the church. It's only our modern experience today where we all sit in there, paperback Bibles sitting around, we've all got these Bibles, we're looking at it, we're looking at hotels, and because of that problem, because they are in drawers and hotels, because people are knocking on your door and saying, hi, I'd like to leave some literature with you here today. Do you have a Bible with you? And they open up their Bibles. It's for that reason that you now have to be prepared with a Bible in hand in order to defend the basic teachings of the faith. So, the... the, um, the, the uh, where did we start? What was the purpose of that? <laughs> so the Lamb's Supper. The Lamb's Supper. Scott Hahn gives you a liturgical read, shows you some of the liturgical information in the book. We skipped some of this information because we were short on time, but remember that as John looks, he sees 24 elders offering bowls of incense to God. And what is that? Well, this is the prayers of the saints. As the psalmist says, let my prayer arise to you like incense. Right? 
Incense. Where do you see incense? In church? Where do you see candles and gold and light? Angels. The Son of Man incarnate for us on the holy altar. Right? So all that imagery is liturgical. And Scott Hahn has done a very nice job for you showing you the early liturgical references that you see in the book of Revelation, which John would hope he would understand, because you, reading this book in Asia Minor, are a participant in the ancient liturgy of Asia Minor, the ancient early literature of that, re uh, liturgy of that region. Okay? Does that help? So, yeah, Scott Hahn's book is very helpful there. He actually also has, in the beginning of that book, it's been a while since I read it, but he has a little layout and outline of a lot of the different liturgies of the church and the different rites of the church, or the different churches within the church of God. That's also helpful for you to understand, because some of the liturgical references, have, we don't do that. We don't have a seven-branch candle stand in our church. Well, in the Eastern liturgy, the custom is to have a seven-branch candle stand behind the holy altar, with an altar of incense, with an altar of bread offering, with the holy table, all of that referring back to the ancient model that we see in Exodus chapter 25, the pattern he saw in heaven. Yes, sir. Uh, for a person who has the uh, futuristic version of the book of Revelation, how do they um, defend all this language of immediacy? Very quickly, <laughs> and by skipping a lot of important references, there, the, when we get to the end of the book, next Saturday, you'll see that there is some futuristic aspects of the book. But when you get to the end of the book and you see that, you realize there is no possible way to interpret the rest of what came earlier as a reference to some distant future beyond our time. You're, you are locked into that ancient world in the first section of the book of Revelation, which is the majority of, the, of it. When we talk about the thousand-year reign of Christ next time, we'll talk about that more in detail. Okay. Yep. Would it be wrong to interpret the seven churches as representing the entire church? Uh, yeah, no, there's nothing. You mean as far as in a general application? Yeah, seven yeah sure. In a certain sense, and you see, and this is actually a very good question, that the early, some of the earliest interpretations of the book of Revelation outside of Asia Minor, you had Christians over in the early Europe, in Gaul, who are being persecuted, and they understand themselves in some way as walking with the Lamb. They understand themselves as sharing in the tribulation of the saints of Asia Minor. And so in that, we also, as Christians today, can read through this book and understand the historical context, understand ourselves as sharing in whatever tribulations are in our lives, in the context of the Christians of Asia Minor who suffered this in the first century. And from their suffering and what they endured, we can also have hope. Yes, one last question. Um, the, the, the letters are written to angels in the, at the cities. Yes. And we take, the church teaches that angels are protectors of particular areas. Yes, the, the fathers of the church fall into two camps, and, not, are, and they are, are not necessarily contradictory over this. There are two groups of fathers. Some interpret the angel of the churches to refer to the bishops of each church. Remember, angelos... Right? Just messenger. There's a number of places in the New Testament, and Malach in, in the Old Testament just means a messenger, a guy who delivers something. Uh, the bishop is the one who delivers the message of the gospel to every church. The other interpretation is common on the fathers is an actual reference to actual angels guarding the church. And again, this is complementary. Right? The bishop standing over the local church, giving the gospel of God for their own protection, is also a visible 
a visible representation of angelic protection over God's people. Okay? All right, we'll close with that, and we'll begin next Saturday to talk about the end of the book. Depart in peace, O Lord, according to thy word. And mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to the revelation of the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. Amen. Amen. Amen.